I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This album was started 10 years ago. And at that time, it was a sort of a revisionist project. Even then, you know, we were saying to ourselves, what was the scene that we came from? Uh, what, what is it that we may be losing and, and what could we retrieve? So I've come, I've come full circle and sort of started to think, this is what I'm made of, you know. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. We just heard Irish dance music legend Roisin Murphy, who is celebrating 25 years in music. We spoke to her last year when she released a critically acclaimed album, Roisin Machine. More with Roisin later on the show. And after Roisin, make sure you don't go anywhere because we have a super special surprise guest from the drag race world. Today, our episode is all about nightlife. You know, it's been a year now since the pandemic forced nightclubs and bars to close. And we wanted to go back to our first time clubbing. (laughs) Do you remember? Yeah, I I think for me, going out and coming out was a, a process that was very it was a combined process. Like I came out because I wanted to go out, basically, and I right. just didn't want to go out. to. You had to come out to go out. <laughs> basically, yeah. And do what? Like try to find men? No, I didn't really want to hook up. It was more like see like gay people in person. I was 14 when I started doing that. Oh, my God. 14, okay. 15. So you got a fake ID? Um, no, I would go to illegal raves oh which is a whole other (laughs) vibe you know whole night so do you remember the first rave and like the feeling that you had walking in there for the first time wow i do i was you know dating my first boyfriend at the time he was five years older than me at the time the end music was called breakbeat it was like this like british electro drum and bass like really early 2000s which in a way you could say influenced like get the party started by ping (laughs) (laughs) it was also that song was huge at the time um and yeah i remember going and like just dancing and i did drugs and it was just like and did you feel like i'm home yeah i did (laughs) What is your experience? So for me, I was living in the West Island, suburbs of Montreal, and I was going to Dawson College at the time. And there were like a group of young West Islanders my age who every morning we would be taking the train to get downtown to go to school, whether it was Dawson or Marianopolis. Right. And so I just met a bunch of people at that time waiting for the train, including this really sweet friend named Jay, who was like so flamboyantly gay, like always wearing like Roberto Cavalli (laughs) t-shirts and 
Like he was Asian, but always dressing like a Montreal Italian. Italian yeah. He was like totally, that was his vibe. That was his style. And he was so much I fun. I love Jay. I, you would have loved Jay, honestly. Anyway, so Jay and I became friends. And then he was like, we should like go out like clubbing. So we would have to take the 68 bus to the 64. We rode each line the whole, like the whole line. Wow. So like we would go to the village and more specifically, we would go to Unity, which was like the big gay club, like the most mainstream one that played all the pop hits. And Jay and I would get there and we'd, you know, we'd be looking for like, who's looking at us. And then we'd sort of both go off with whoever we found. Did you make out with strangers? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Your age, older, tell me everything. Well, the first guy that I kissed was at that time. Okay. Like during one of those excursions with Jay. Like I still hadn't been kissed. And it was this moment that I'd fantasized about for so long, like growing up watching soap operas. So like I was waiting for this moment and getting to Unity, they had these like little podiums that you can get up on and dance on. And I got up on one of the podiums and I was dancing to Jerry Hollowell's Ride It, <laughs> which was like my song at the time. And there was this guy that like sort of kept looking at me like on and off as I was up there and like making that eye contact with him. And I remember he he was wearing Jean-Paul Gaultier's Le Mal cologne, which oh, wow. I will always associate with, with that, that first kiss and that okay. first moment. And he must have been a bit older than me. And like, it's so like embarrassing to remember, but like really like grinding up on each <laughs> other, like putting our hands underneath each other's clothes, right. like just going full on. Wow. Full on. So Jay and I would stay at Unity until three in the morning when it closed. And then we'd have to wait until 5.30 in the morning for the metros to reopen and take the buses back after that. We would get home at like 7.30, 8 in the morning. I would come in reeking like smoke. <laughs> like it smelled like my t-shirt was like ground into an ashtray. And I can still remember that smell and like crawling into bed feeling so exhausted. Because we have been out from like, you know, 11 the night before to like eight in the morning. But in general, like I was, I was never a big nightlife person. Okay. I mean, so... As much as I regret not taking more advantage of the chance to go out, I'm already like planning my outfits for when we are able to hit the dance floor again. I have like dance parties in my apartment, just me, but I'm imagining that I am there with all of us together, just like jumping on each other, screaming, singing along to Spice Girls and Madonna and Kylie and Mariah and JLo. I'm going to be there the first fucking second that we can. I promise. Nightlife is so important to me. It's a community. It's like, it's just like, I love the physical sensation of loud music. Yeah. Also in a room. But of course, our guest today, Roisin Murphy, for anyone who doesn't know her, She's sort of the underground queen of the UK dance music world. She's a fashion icon, a performance artist. Her story is absolutely insane. So she was born in Ireland uh, in the mid-80s. At 12, she moves to Manchester with her parents, who, when they lived there, 
get a divorce, but she's so badass that she stays in Manchester. She keeps going out, and then she meets Mark Bryden, with whom she fell in love, and they started the legendary group Moloko. If these names say, are saying nothing to you, there's probably one song that you would know from Moloko, which was their huge hit in 1999, Sing It Back. Let's listen. I feel like Roisin in some ways is like Kylie Minogue for intellectuals. <laughs> <laughs> for people who wear turtlenecks. So last year, Roisin returned to the dance floor at a time where the dance floors were closed with the album Roisin Machine. We were seriously so excited to talk to Roisin, a person whose life and work is so entrenched with dance and club culture. And just a quick heads up, listeners, you may hear some scratching during the interview. Yeah, her microphone was rubbing off on her scarf. and her it was very glamorous. Scarf. And it was just this moment where I'm speaking to my idol on Zoom and I have to ask her to, like, move the microphone a little bit. Roisin, congratulations on the new album. Thank you. It's very exciting. It's very exciting for fans like Trena and I because we've been fans for a long time. Um, and, you know, in the press, you've been labeled as the underrated queen of avant-garde pop. But it feels like the world is finally catching up on you. And oh. as a fan, it feels very, very good to be to be right. Um We really want to travel back to the beginnings of when you started going out. What was it like to have that kind of independence at 15? It was a big decision. I could have gone back to Ireland with my mom, but I think they had such a bad breakup that I think I knew in my heart she needed not to be a mom for a bit, you know. And I was already immersed in music culture. I was already going to loads of gigs, and that was the type of people that I hung out with. And I think there's a moment when I fell into night culture, into music culture, really, um, that I found a space to, to start to draw myself, you know. And a lot of my work is about, when you look at the, really the lyrics and stuff, it's really about individualism and making yourself the part that you can make and, and doing the best job you possibly can at that. I, I love that freedom, and I should have asked this at the beginning, but I grew up like just devouring every month. Q, uh, ma the, ma the music magazine back in your Moloko days, listening to really a lot of indie music from the UK, really being passionate about the scene and fantasizing about the Hacienda, like the nightclub in Manchester. And I was so surprised to hear in one interview that you did that you weren't a fan of the Hacienda. Am I a fan? You know, it's not actually as huge as a as a super club, but it's kind of like um, a super club. I love the ones where it's one room and you walk in and, and the door closes behind you. And ideally, there's sort of mirrors and wood and uh, carpet and uh, soft stuff and an amazing DJ. And ideally, you know, a dance floor full of people who earnestly just want to be there and give everything they have to it. I think when you find young people, when young people find each other through a sort of shared love of music, um, they get an extra level of connection, an extra um, layer of pride. It's a more intimate type thing, really, than a, 
super club experience where you're kind of trapped in the corridor all the time. So you're just partying in Manchester and Sheffield in the 90s. But really, how did you get into being an artist? How did you feel that you could do this, that you could have this career and that you could sustain it? Well, I wasn't sure I could sustain it. And I've often wondered, you know. Right. Uh, but I fell into it accidentally when I was going around with my little skinhead and my plastic trousers and going to every club in Sheffield and Manchester and a few people said to me along the way, you know, don't know what you're going to be, Roisin, but you're going to be something. And uh, that was kind of the way I went, the way I rolled for a few years. <laughs> like, don't know what I'm going to be, but something will happen. I met Mark Bryden on the very night that I met him. I chatted him up and uh, he was the handsomest fella in Sheffield. Well, that's good. I mean, you know, if you really believe in something, it's worth fighting for, you know, and then uh, usually Roisin realises I'm right. Oh, give me a break. I think it's usually the other way around, love. He took me to his studio that night and uh, recorded me talk and nonsense on his one of his tracks. Wearing a tight sweater and I was chanting, do you like my tight sweater? Do you like my tight sweater? And that was the start of a, of a love affair. We have a lot in common as well. I can't really explain this. Well, we both, we both like to avoid real life as much yeah. as possible, I think, so. And over the next few months, we just occasionally would, in the middle of the night when the studio was empty, we'd go in and make stuff that was just an extension of being in love with each other. And no, there was no singing or anything. It was ideas. It was conceptual things. It was it was me being a bit reactionary as well and sort of young and going, no, nah, no, nah, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do acid jazz, you know, and sticking my nose up at things and, and him kind of smiling knowingly and kind of going along with me to charm me. The, his manager took the tapes to London we got a deal and I remember saying to Mark are you crazy like you want to sign a six album deal they want a six album deal and he said listen Roisin don't worry about the six album deal he said if you get six albums something's gone very right so you won't really have to worry about it if you get to that point and that was very true obviously When we were speaking to Roy Sheen, Thomas, I noticed that your eyes like lit up when she was talking about the Maloko years. You were so excited. Because it brought me back to being a teenager and how obsessed I was with British music, downloading as much as I could. And there was one song, which was a song I loved when at around the time that I came out and started to go out. And the song is called The Time Is Now. And just to hear Roisin talk about these years, it was just a really special moment for me. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I feel my story is still untold. This album was started 10 years ago. And at that time, it was a a sort of a revisionist project. Even then, you know, we were saying to ourselves, what was the scene that we came from? Uh, What what is it that we may be losing? and, And what could we retrieve? So I've come full circle and sort of started to think, this is what I'm made of, you know. If anything, for my taste, it's a little bit too pop. I mean, and, and I, I take the responsibility. It's my fault that that's the way it is because uh, I'm a fucking pop singer, you know, but <laughs> I hate myself for it. Um, is pop so, a bad word for you? Not really, but it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, I'm trying to get to something deeper with the voice now. Um, as much as I am with the production or anything else. I'm trying to get to something as timeless as possible. And Mm -hmm. I'm not there. I'm not there yet. I mean, you open the album with simulation and you say, I feel my story is still untold. And you've always struck me as a kind of mysterious person. And I wonder how much of your story do you want people to know? Mystery is part of every personality. Mystery is part of of, of beauty and the uncanny. And um, you, you don't want to know too much too soon from anyone. Perhaps fame uh, wouldn't have suited me as a in my twenties. Could be that if if a lot of fame and stuff had been thrown at me, I would have got somehow maybe lost or confused or depressed. You know, and I never felt famous, never even at Sing It Back. And I didn't feel like I actually finally made the kind of statement about um, my vision or anything like that. And I I still don't. And I think maybe what that means is that I was meant to do this for a long time. I was meant to have longevity. I wonder if that idea of individualism for you goes back to the sort of bullying that you experienced as a child, that was something that I really connected to. Mm. How did you navigate that? And how did that either strengthen or maybe weaken your sense of self and individualism? Well, see, there was two sides to it. You know, there was, if I went to my grandmother after being bullied, she'd say, well, yeah, I mean, it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) You know, basically you're a pain in the arse and uh, if I went if I went to my Auntie Linda I'd sit on my Auntie Linda's knee and she'd big bosoms like this and she used to say they're all jealous they're jealous <laughs> so um there's two sides to every story, you know. Oh, what about what about your dad? Because you you said that your dad is also the individualistic one in the family. Exactly. Well, you see, this is it. I mean, that's where that's where I got in trouble. I mean, that's where I I still get in trouble. Um, 
that I've picked up this thing from my dad, who's a total individualist, you know, and um, I'd say things to me dad, like, you know, I want to be a, a nurse. And he'd say, why do you want to be a nurse when you could be a doctor? But I just was brought up to think I could do whatever I wanted to do. You know, there are people who don't like that. There are people who find that arrogant, you know, to, 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 to even want to be uncompromising. I think that idea of, you know, holding on to your integrity and not compromising really comes together on something more, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. I just want to read some of the lyrics. Um, so, a crown upon my head, 10 lovers in my bed, but I want something more. And I love those lyrics so much because to me, it is like this push and pull of wanting everything, but then also wanting to let go of the agony of wanting. And I'm just yeah. curious about how do you find yourself in between those two energies, the energy of wanting and the energy of no longer wanting? And where do you think you fit in between those two energies right now in your life? No, I'm still, I'm still wanting. I think that's been a theme that's gone through my whole lyrical career as well. And it really is a sort of resignation into an acceptance that there are certain things that are not, not actually in your control. And um, there's a definite curiosity in me about the very idea of will you know and and do do i have self-determination because you do wonder sometimes especially in the moment where so many freedoms have suddenly just been taken away from us in the blink of an eye and you wonder jesus did i ever have it in the first place was i ever free you know it's ta it's the tantalizing almost getting your desire isn't that what it's all about too and that and that and that moment always is better anyway than getting the desire hmm. and that's what the song kingdom of ends is about you know when you come to the end of the desire completely lost then you know when you got what you wanted um so it is it is the going there that that's that's the joy and the making of the thing do you still feel that you're fueled by wanting so much more? Do you feel that it's a good thing to be wanting so much more and to wanting to be free to do what you want to do? I want to get loaded. <laughs> 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 and you can't say you want to be free to do what you want to do and then not say, I want to get loaded. <laughs> so, Roisin, just before we let you go... What are you hoping for on the other side of this pandemic and this year that we've all gone through? What is your vision of what's next? Will we find our way back to the dance floor together? I do believe that I'll be out touring next September and onwards. And I do also think that it'll be a fantastic show. We have an incredible catalog to play and songs that people know and We'll be all gagging for it by then, and it will be an explosion of joy when these things start to happen again. And people will come to a show like mine or other great performers and bands and things like that, 
And they will walk in and the door will close behind them. And so don't worry, because within two minutes, you're going to forget everything that's outside the door. That's what these things are for. And you'll lose yourself in it. And it will be as it always was. Thank you so much, Roisin. Thank you so much. That was really amazing. I love the record. Thank you. Lovely talking to you guys. You too. Roisin Murphy. Her new album, Roisin Machine, is available wherever you get your music, and I cannot recommend it more highly. I love Roisin so much. And, I mean, she has the best style in music. I think one resolution that I have for when things open back up again is I want to dress it up a little bit more. Like throw some pom-poms on your sweater? <laughs> Just a bit, be a bit more flashy because I'm a like black t-shirt kind of kind of guy. Yeah. You know, and I think it's also from watching so much Drag Race in lockdown. Like I've watched so You're like looking much. at the garbage in your apartment and like, <laughs> what kind of outfit can I make out of this? I see you've been watching more Drag Race as well. Yeah, I've gotten into it. So a few days ago, I was really lucky to speak to One of the queens of the UK drag race universe, Crystal, the Canadian one. And I think I just saw that she also has a new podcast. She's joining the podcast world. (laughs) What's it called again? The Things That Made Me Queer. It's a podcast where Crystal asks her guests the top five things that made them queer. It can be music, television, film. And I knew Crystal back in the day when she used to live in Montreal. So it was a, a real treat to catch up with her. People know that you're Canadian and that you grew up in Nova Scotia, Canada, but not many people know that you lived in Montreal for a few years. Did you come here for school or did you come here for self-discovery? Yeah, I came for just to do the gay in the big city kind of experience, that typical run away from home and go and lose yourself in the big city moment. I had my first like serious relationship in Montreal. And also broke up of that in Montreal and then had the like post breakup, find yourself through sex with strangers in Montreal. Like there was all Montreal did all of that for me. You were not doing drag at the time because I believe you you started drag in London. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I did drag one time in Montreal um, and it was the very first time I did drag and it was at... um, Oh God, what's the name of that strip club on at the bottom of Saint Laurent, like where it meets St. Catherine? Oh, Cleopatra's. Yes, Cleopatra's. Um, I did a couple of burlesque shows there, and one of them was in drag. Well, there's one floor that's a strip club, and then the other floor is a, is a cabaret. So you did drag the first time ever at Cleopatra. That's right. <laughs> An illustrious or dubious honor, depending on how you want to look at it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so you moved to London right after, like, I guess, 2009, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? When did you start drag? Uh, it took me about five years. So I, okay. I I had like in Montreal, I definitely had like my creative juices flowing and I was helping produce these burlesque shows and I had all of that nightlife plugged in. And when I moved to London, I was just suddenly a very, very small fish in a very, very big pond. And it took me quite a long time before I felt like oh, producing events and stuff is something that I could do again. And the drag scene here in East London is very similar to like, I don't know, the queer scene in Montreal. It's just crunchy and weird and funny and great and stupid. And um, 
I didn't realize that drag could be like that because the drag that I had seen in Montreal was mostly um, village drag, like at Meadow, just a very specific kind of vision of what drag was. And it hadn't particularly appealed to me, but then I found this whole other scene. How did you find your footing and how has nightlife really allowed you to find your, your, your kin basically in London? Well, the first shows that I was doing were in an illegal bar under a railway arch in East London that was also a Mexican wrestling school by day and sometimes an art gallery and sometimes hosted sex parties. I only found out it was an illegal venue after we stopped doing shows there. So it turns out like any time we could have been raided and nothing was nothing was nothing was okay but actually looking back you can kind of tell that was probably the case. All the while you're like, you know, getting ready with your phone torch and sitting on a crate on a case of whiskey trying to like do your makeup and it's all very dingy and crusty and I guess quite cool. We were producing shows from there, like not really sure how it was going to go. I did a one-off and it sold out. So I did some more and then it just kind of snowballed. That definitely helped me meet the people in the, in the drag scene that I'm still friends with today. Like that helped me find my footing as a performer, helped me understand like what kind of, performance i wanted to do and what my point of view was yeah you just find your people that way absolutely so i read in an interview that um in the drag race universe we talk a lot about you know the runways the challenges the lip syncs but one part that is i find very overlooked and you mentioned it are the mirror chats the difficulties and challenges that anyone has, has faced in the workroom, you know, how their parents reacted to them coming out or doing drag. These conversations are so radical. And I feel if I had seen these very emotional conversations between queers growing up, it would have been completely different for me. Totally. These are the struggles that you face as a gay man and putting a human face on like a family kicking you out and things like that. I think it's really, really amazing. But like being there in that moment, um, it's kind of the last thing you want to talk about. Because <laughs> <laughs> you are fucking stressed out. You're worried about getting your face done in time. You know that you've got a big challenge to do on the main stage. You're worried, like you're painting your face and it's like the most important face you've ever painted in your life. And then you've got a producer and you're being like, could you talk about your childhood bullying? You're like, really? <laughs> <laughs> now 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 you want me to do that um so uh it's a bit of both um and just to wrap things up it feels like we are getting to the next phase of the pandemic and especially in the uk you're doing so good with vaccines right now um what is like first night out what do you, what is it going to be for you oh my god do you perform do you just party do you dance what's the music what's the scene I think the ideal would be an early show so you get all of the energy and attention and that's really great and then you go on you de-drag and you go on to like some sleazy warehouse rave till five in the morning and hopefully they've got really good like fun techno in one room and then there's another room where they're just playing all of the pop hits that we didn't get a chance to dance to yet that would be my absolute dream it's really sweaty wearing something mesh and um, losing my mind for a good 10 hours Okay, looking forward to that. Crystal, <laughs> thank you so much for being on Chosen Family. Good luck with the show. Thank you so much.
So, Thomas, what are you obsessed with this week? So, I'm currently reading uh, The Gay Book of the Moment. It's called Gay Bar uh, by American writer Jeremy Atherton and Lynn. Jeremy grew up in California, lives in London, and he wrote this part cultural history book, part memoir about gay nightlife in the 90s and 2000s. So from London to San Francisco to West Hollywood, he's reminiscing of all of these places and the smells of these places. Oh. <laughs> I'm putting emphasis because we all know what a gay bar smells like. <laughs> um, so, and I'm just, re I'm making my way through it right now. I have, I'm not finished with it, but there are so many important elements because he's Uh, really chronicling the transition of that space as a refuge, really, when he was younger and why he would seek the company of other gay men um, when he started going out to what it is now in the era of, I mean, before COVID, but in the era of apps and hookups. Right. And it's just a different culture. Um, he's not like too nostalgic, but that's what I like. He's just like, he just describes it the way it was. And I think there were downsides. Um, it's a pretty hot read. I'm not gonna lie. I mean, lie. I think every gay person I know has posted a picture of this book. I mean, it's I've the thing. it everywhere. It's the gay book du jour. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's also what's exciting is feeling that that's what everyone's right. reading at the moment is like, okay, we can like be together even right. if we're not together in the actual gay bar. But those spaces are important. You know, I know that we love to think, especially in places like Montreal and other major cities, that we've evolved past the need for specifically queer spaces. But I don't think that's true. And it's like, you never know when you're going to need those refuges, you know? We like, really, really haven't. So I, and I know that for a lot of people in the community, it's a scary thought to think about all the gay bars and all the gay clubs that are closing down because of this last year mm -hmm. or that are in danger of closing down. This book seems like it's a really urgent reminder of why we're going to always yeah. need these spaces. Why we need these spaces and what we do there. And, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's like a, right now we're not going out and like, you know, people are having less sex and it's just great to read about horny people in the 90s. And <laughs> and I, Relive it. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. What are you obsessed with? I've been watching a lot of concert films and one in particular that I'm really obsessed with is Madonna's MDNA tour. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> which I went to see that show live three times, once in Montreal, once in New York at Yankee Stadium, and then the third time in Ottawa, the most glamorous of places. <laughs> But what was crazy about the Ottawa show The way that her her stage was set up, there was this thing called the Golden Triangle because she had these runways coming out of the of the main stage that formed this like pit. Oh, I remember. But the only way that you could get into the pit was like by contest through her website or by invitation. Sometimes people would just get randomly selected to go in the pit at the shows. And before the show, um, uh, there was a DJ playing, and then this girl just came out of nowhere. She came up to me, my friend, and she was like, do you guys want to go in the Golden Triangle? Are you kidding me? And this was our third and last concert of the tour that we were going to. So we were freaking out. And because I had seen it two other times, I knew exactly where to position myself in the pit <laughs> to get as close as possible. And then during like a prayer, she was literally standing like right above us. And I extended my arm and she held my hand. But like a prayer and that I remember from that tour was the moment of the yeah, show. It was the moment of the show. 
And I remember like really holding, it wasn't just like touching my finger, like holding you her hold, hand. You like, held I Madonna? Pulled, I could have pulled her down. Oh my God, you would have gone And famous. I didn't want to let go, but I did let go. I didn't pull her down. What's kind of funny about that film though, is that, you know, she was a bit older at that time, although still looks amazing. amazing yeah. But at that time she was probably around like 54. 54. Yeah. Um, and being as vain as she is, <laughs> The, the film itself, like the brightness is turned all the way up and the contrast is turned all the way up. So she just looks like a spotlight. She's just like, her face is just like a white circle with eyes and lips and like two nostrils. You cannot see anything. But when I saw it live, like I could see the veins in her forehead, like and she, again, she looked amazing. And I could see like the the drops of sweat on her forehead. And I I just want to be able to experience a concert I'm, again. I'm going to rewind. I've seen the show, but I'm going to watch the concert film. Like the book. It's nice to just relive a little bit. It's comforting. Roisin Murphy, Drag Race UK, Madonna. That was a party. That was a party. As close as you're going to get to a party <laughs> in a podcast. And to keep the party going, we have a special announcement. That is right. We have a new column with Extra Magazine. It's called That's the Way It Is. When you want it the most, there is no easy way out. But there is easy access to the column. You can find it at extramagazine.com. And basically, it's a debate club where Thomas and I, every two weeks, will be dissecting a major pop culture moment. And this week, we unpack the Harry and Meghan saga, the Oprah interview, everything that's been going on in the last year, and more. So all of this in our new column. We're really excited. So now the, the lights turn on. Time's for credits. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's last call. <laughs> Chosen Family is produced by me, Trana Winter. And me, Thomas LeBlanc. Aiden McMahon edits and mixes the show. Natalia Ndongo is our contributing producer. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Tsigu is our digital producer. Tina Verma is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Narani is the executive producer. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. We are recording this season at Tome Park Studio. And if you haven't already, follow us on Instagram at Chosen Family Show. It's super fun to connect with people. We're posting our inspiration. It's a mood board. <laughs> it's an experience. There'll be some more Instagram lives. And if you enjoy the show, please uh, share your favorite episode. Tag us. It's always a pleasure to know what you're connecting with. Uh, and DM us on the Chosen Family account, because I know Trina doesn't like to get a DM on her personal <laughs> account. <laughs> and of course, you can listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.